Have you ever been in an argument with someone? Ever had a disagreement with anybody? Ever been divided over an issue? No one's raising your hand, so I guess this sermon's a big waste of time. You know, this sermon's not going to do anything for anybody in this room today. Now, the reality is we've all argued with somebody. We've all disagreed with someone. We've all been in a situation where there was some kind of division over some issue. There is a country in Africa called Sudan. And in Sudan, there is a state within the country. And this state sits in about the center part of the entire country. And there is a national government that resides in the northern part. And they call the state by one name. And then there is another autonomous government that's in the southern part, and they call the state by a completely different name. Kind of confusing, right? I mean, it'd be like if if we said we live in the state of the Midlands, and people in the northern part of South Carolina would say, well, we live in the state of upstate. You know, it's, it's confusing. And so you have these two governments that recognize the state with two different names. The southern government calls the state the Western Upper Nile. That's what they call the state. The northern government goes by a name that has been used for many, many years, and that name is unity. Do the math. There is division in the state of unity. We have a world that is constantly using the word unity. And yet we also have a world that seems to have lots of division, right? Unity is very popular. It's, it's talked about on, on almost every show you see on C-SPAN or on Fox News or CNN. You can pick up the paper and you see lots of things on unity. There are institutes and councils. There's conferences. There's banquets held all around the concept of unity. Tonight, People will want their favorite team to play in unity in order to win the game. At work, there are all types of things about being a team player at work and and being unified in the effort of what's going on. We live in a culture that wants unity in politics and unity in education and unity in religion. But the truth of the matter is, for all the talk that we have of unity, we can go into our kitchens in the morning... Or we can listen to talk radio driving into work, or we can pick up a paper and surf the internet. And we'll find that in our kitchens and in our community, in our nation, and around the world, if there's one thing there's not tons of, it's unity. We live in a world that needs unity, and yet there is very little. And what about in the church? You know the old kids thing you do with your hands, right? Here's a church. There's a steeple. Open it up. There's the people. Are the people of God supposed to have unity? Are the people of God supposed to be unified? Well, sure they are. They're supposed to be unified. But let me just note that all division is not always wrong. Adrian Rogers said this, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts then kills. In other words, there are some moments where the truth of the Bible 
might cause some measure of division even among professing believers. But unless it's about the nature of God or the doctrine of salvation, most of the time, if we're honest, a lack of unity at home or a lack of unity in the church is not over the nature of God or the doctrine of salvation, is it? Now, our division is usually a lot of other things. And in the church, that type of division that's not based on the nature of God and not based on the doctrine of salvation, that kind of division needs to go away quick. It needs to be resolved quick. Why? Because of all the groups in the world, we're the group that speaks the gospel. And so if there's ever a place that there needs to be unity, it needs to be the place that's connected to the gospel. We live in a world that is divided in lots and lots of ways. We live in a dark world. So if there's one group that needs to shine the light of unity with the message of the gospel, it's us. It's the church. We need to be united. Sinclair Ferguson said this, How can non-Christians be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we are not reconciled to each other? When we devour ourselves, we have little energy left to be shining light in a needy world. So, how do we do that? How do we be light in a needy world? Maybe put another way, how can we have more unity in our marriages? How can we have more unity with our parents? How can we have more unity with our teenage children or our young children? How can we have more unity in the church? Well, let's find out. Look with me beginning at Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. This is the first of four if statements that Paul is going to give us. And if here can be translated since or because. And so we're going to work under this umbrella this morning. If you are a Christian, since you are a Christian, because you are a Christian. Okay, that's the filter we're going to use today for all that we look at. If you are a Christian, since you are a Christian, because you are a Christian. And the first if statement that Paul gives us is this. If you are a Christian, then you have encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement here is a word that means come alongside with somebody, you know. Somebody's in need. You're coming next to them. You're, you're helping them out. You're going you're to get their back. Joshua was taken over for Moses, and this is what God said to him. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Those are huge words. I mean, that, that is a wedding vow of all wedding vows. I will be with you. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. This is the one true God of the universe telling this one Middle Eastern man, I have your back always. There's never a time that I will not be with you. I'm pretty sure that would encourage Joshua. <laughs> the God of the universe saying, I have you, I'm with you. That would be encouraging. A Christian has the exact same encouragement in Christ. The exact same. 
Paul was writing to the church at Rome, and he said this, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. See, in Christianity, we believe this, that Jesus Christ, the one Son of God, died on the cross, was crucified on the cross for the sin of the world. But we also believe and hold as real and true and are confident in this fact, he did not stay dead. Jesus Christ is alive today. He will be alive forever. Death no longer is a master over him. And don't miss this. That means that if I am in Christ, if I am a Christian, that means death no longer has mastery over me. It means that when I die, I won't really die. Yes, physically I might die. But according to the gospel, I will live forever because I'm in Christ. I will live forever in the beauty and the honor and the glory and the wonderful peace and hope and love and life of God. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. That sounds encouraging to me. On a really, really bad day, the the fact that one day it will never be bad again, that's encouraging to me. I have that encouragement in Christ. Paul again to the Romans says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I love that. Really? Who's going to come up to somebody and say, hey, I know you're a Christian, but I'm more powerful than God in your life? I mean, really? I mean, if you're a harsh husband, you're a fool if you think you have more power over your wife than God. If you're a nagging wife, you're a fool if you think you have more power over your husband than God. If you are exhausting and exasperating with your children, you're a fool if you think you have more power over your children than God. You see, God is the sovereign king of the universe. No one, not you, not the president, not a king, not a queen, not the Super Bowl champs, no one has more power and authority than God. And so when we are in Christ, no one can say to us, I can do something to you. Because they can't. Because we're God's. Because Jesus is our Redeemer. We we are His. Years ago, I was talking to my friend Brent. Brent was one of our pastors at our church at the time, and Brent Martin said this to me. I'll never forget it. It blew me away. It's, it's way too simple, but it's also just too good. He said, when I remember that God is for me, everything's okay. When I ignore that, everything is usually not okay. That's huge. When I ignore the fact that God is for me because I'm in Christ. When I ignore that, I can easily get down. I can easily get depressed. I can easily get discouraged. I can easily get anxious. I can easily get afraid. I can easily get stressed. I can easily whine. I can easily complain. I can easily be selfish. When I forget 
that God is for me. But when I remember that I am in Christ, then I remember, wait, God, the God of the universe, the one true God, the Holy One of Israel, He is for me. I am a scrub from North Augusta and the God of the universe. He's for me. He's for me. Paul's writing to suffering believers. Believers who were learning what it meant to walk with Jesus Christ. Believers who were fighting for what it meant to have joy in Jesus. And he writes to them, look, if you're a Christian, then you have this encouragement. God is for you. That's the encouragement you have in Christ. What about the second if statement Paul gives us? Look back at verse 1. If there is any consolation of love. Have you ever heard what they say to game show contestants, the ones who lose sometimes? You know, the announcer comes over and he says, you know, thanks for playing with us. We have some nice consolation prizes for you. Some nice parting gifts you know, it really sounds like this. Hey, loser, pick up a toaster on your way out. Thanks for coming. This word consolation sometimes is used in, in different ways. I laughed this week. I was trying to find a, a definition on console. Actually, I was trying to find a picture of the word console. This, this is funny to me, at least. Um, you may not laugh, and that's okay. I'll have a good laugh by myself. But I looked up the word console in, like, Google Images, and it brought up like video game consoles. <laughs> so I thought, that doesn't encourage me at all. You know, we use the word console and console and consolation and consolation prizes in ways that it does not mean here. The word consolation here means to comfort someone who is grieving, someone who's really, really struggling, someone who has deep, deep grief. Have you ever experienced any grief in your life? Are you experiencing some right now? Do you have some grief in your marriage? Do you have some grief with your kids? Do you have some grief at work, some grief at school? Do you have some grief with your parents? Do you have some financial grief? Do you have some medical grief? Are you having some emotional grief? If so, then don't miss the if that Paul is giving us. He says, if you are a Christian, you have the consolation, you have the comfort of the love of Jesus Christ. The very love of Jesus is yours. What kind of comfort is this? This is how Paul said it again to the Romans. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation Nope. Or distress? No. Or persecution? Not at all. Or famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. Sword? No. And then he goes on. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. No one. No one will separate us. Not even, Paul says, 
death. Death cannot separate us from the love of Christ. That is a huge medicine for grief. You know why? Because your spouse may give you the cold shoulder. And your spouse may reject you. Your children, they may be embarrassed to be seen with you in public. I never get that. Especially when we're in the toy section and I'm trying on masks. That never happens. Your children may openly rebel. They may leave. You may lose your job. Your team may lose the game. You may start losing your memory. You may start lose the ability to physically do things that you've done all your life. But if you are a Christian, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot lose Christ. Can't happen. It's impossible. The worst moment of life cannot remove Jesus from your life. You cannot be separated from his love. Paul's giving some pretty big if statements. He says, if you're a Christian, you have this encouragement in Christ. God, God's for you. If you're a Christian, you have this comfort in Christ. You cannot, under any circumstances, be separated from the love of Christ. What's the third if statement? Look what Paul says. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, when a person is saved, when a person is converted, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, becomes the chief operating officer of that person's heart and mind and soul. They're, they're completely in control of, of the Spirit and the emotions and the feelings of that person's life. And because there's only one Holy Spirit, that means as soon as that person is converted and regenerated, they're immediately connected to the Holy Spirit, and so is every single other Christian in the universe, past, present, and future. So there is immediate fellowship with all of the kingdom and family of God just because of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the power and the authority of the Spirit. Now, let me say this. I think when we think of fellowship with the Spirit, that sounds real churchy. sounds real theological. So I am going to, for the benefit of me, bring this really low and maybe overly simple. But just hang with me for a moment. O'Neill Crouch lived across the hall from me my freshman year in college. He was fun, hilarious, and he was a follower of Jesus. The next year, I think it was our sophomore year, he transferred to another degree program at another university out of state. And so I didn't see him for three years. Completely lost contact with him. And then one day, the last semester of my college career, I'm at one of the most remotest places on planet, on the planet, not even on campus, on the planet. No one was ever in this area. I mean, there was like two classes that met there, and those two classes had like, you know, five people in them. I'm the only person who was ever out there in that area. But lo and behold, on this particular afternoon, in the most remotest part of campus where nobody ever goes, who do I run into but O'Neill Crouch? We sat down on a bench and started talking. I think he was there to see his sister visit with her or something. But, but we just sat down. We started catching up. And three years had gone by. And we started telling one another the things that God had been doing in our lives. And I remember in that conversation, I stopped and I said, O'Neill, isn't this wild? We haven't seen each other in three years. And it kind of feels like three days ago or three weeks ago. 
Isn't this weird, this, this immediate connection we have? And it's all because of Christ. And I wasn't trying to sound theological. I was like, this is weird. We haven't seen each other a long time. And man, we're, we're just here. We're connected immediately again because of the gospel, because of our salvation. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you have fellowship with the Spirit of God. You have a relationship with the Spirit of God, and that relationship cannot be hindered or taken away. And that relationship, because there's one Spirit of God, immediately connects us with all other believers all over the world. We're in fellowship. We're in relationship nonstop because of the Spirit. Here's how Paul told the church at Ephesus these big things. In him, in Christ... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Those are great words. Sealed, promised, protected, it can't be touched. It can't be separated. This is, this is there. This is, this is happening. I bought some andouille sausage the other night. I love andouille sausage. All my illustrations for the next 24 years will have something to do with food, just so you know. And I don't know why, because I've bought this brand and kind for, for several years now, but for some reason I looked at the package and it looked like it had been opened. And I was like, man, if that's been open, that is not going to be a good sausage. Now, I didn't know what was going on, but I, I picked up the other packages, and sure enough, they were all about the same. And what was I doing? Well, I was thinking about my body because I didn't want a big package of bad sausage, right? Because that was probably going to make me sick because that sausage is supposed to be sealed for the purpose of then being enjoyed at a later time. Now, that's a silly food example to say this. When someone comes to faith in Christ, man, they are sealed for something to be enjoyed at a later time. Something that we can't imagine. So much better than the Super Bowl. So much better than halftime. Even better, I can't believe I'm saying this, than the commercials of the Super Bowl. What we have been sealed with in the Holy Spirit is great and wonderful and unimaginable. And it's real. It's promised. It cannot be taken away from us. If you are a Christian... You have this encouragement in Christ. God is for you. If you are a Christian, you have this comfort in Christ. You cannot be separated from his love. And if you are a Christian, you have this promise in Christ that the Holy Spirit is in relationship and fellowship with you, and that cannot be changed. What about the fourth if statement? Paul gives us again, looking there at verse 1. If any affection and compassion. The word affection here literally means bowels. (laughs) All right, I wanted to come to church on Sunday to hear about my bowels. Great, yeah. But the idea is this, that the mercy and the compassion and the love of Jesus reaches the deepest part of who we are. There is no person in this room, there's no spouse, there's no child, there's no grandchild, there's no pastor, 
There's no rock star. There's no movie star. There's no famous athlete. There is absolutely no one and nothing in this world who can reach the deepest part of your soul like Jesus. And he reaches that deep part with compassion and mercy and love. Even the people that we're closest to in life do not always reach us with compassion, mercy, and love, do they? But Jesus does. Paul says if you are a Christian, you have the rich mercy of Christ reaching the deepest part of your soul, the part that nobody else can get to. This is how Paul said it to the church at Rome. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was spiritually stillborn. I was dead in my transgressions. I was shackled to sin. But then, as the song goes, the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. You see, I'm not here today because this is my job. I'm here today because Jesus Christ has captured my heart in the deepest parts. On my worst days, I have experienced his compassion and his mercy. On my darkest days, there was the light all around me. Because why? Because the mercy of Jesus reaches the deepest part of my life. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you've never been converted, if you've never been regenerated, I have some hard but but very real and truthful news for you. If you're not in Christ, then God is not for you. And you are separated from the love of Christ. And you're not experiencing what it means to be sealed in fellowship with Jesus and with the Spirit. And if you don't repent and and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the deepest parts of your soul will never get the mercy and the compassion that your soul wants the most. Because only Jesus gives that compassion and only Jesus gives that mercy. If you're a Christian and you have this encouragement in Christ, God's for you. If you're a Christian, then you have this comfort in Christ. You cannot be separated from his love. If you're a Christian, you have this promise in Christ that the the Spirit of God is in relationship with you. you. You have fellowship with the Spirit. And if you are a Christian, then you have this hope. There is not a second of the day that Jesus is not fighting to deposit his mercy in your life. It's constant. So what do we do with that? What do we do with those ifs? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Paul says this. If you are a Christian, since you are a Christian, because you are a Christian, then what you should be doing is using all of those if statements to pursue unity in the gospel. Spiritually, 
mentally, emotionally, we are supposed to be working hard to make much of Jesus. We're supposed to be talking about Jesus and living for Jesus and following Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing with our lives if we are a Christian, if we are a believer. Or maybe put another way, and maybe you've seen this passage of Scripture somewhere in the last few weeks. John said what? He must increase and I must decrease. So let's pull these if statements into marriage. Let's pull these if statements into our relationship with our kids. Let's pull these if statements into life in the church. Let's pull these if statements in life in the community, in the world. If I'm encouraged in Christ, then I'm not paralyzed when my spouse discourages me. If I'm encouraged in Christ, I'm not paralyzed when my kids discourage me. If I'm encouraged in Christ, I'm not paralyzed when other people discourage me or when circumstances discourage me. Rather, I'm encouraged in Christ. And that encouragement eventually spills over into the lives of other people. And they begin to be encouraged as well. Because we all know that that vinegar and, and rudeness and cold shoulders, and nagging. Those are the best way to be happy in our relationships, right? I mean, there's no way that honey and thank yous and kindness and affirmation and building up would ever be good for us too, right? See, the reality is this encouragement in Christ, it it has teeth. It can get into those moments of life. And Paul's telling us that encouragement in Christ is a seed for unity. It it helps unity to grow. Don't ignore the encouragement of Christ. And what about the comfort of Christ? Well, the comfort of Christ reminds me that I'm in Christ, so I don't have to be obsessed with winning the argument. (laughs) We're never obsessed with winning the argument, right? I mean, we're never really wanting to be the one at the end that someone goes, all right, you're right. We don't want that, do we? Having the comfort of Christ means we're not fighting to win the argument and we're not fighting to get our way. In fact, having the comfort in Christ means that all day long we keep remembering and keep noting, man, God just forgave me for that and I didn't deserve it. All day long we're getting forgiveness moment after moment after moment and we keep getting forgiven and the more we're forgiven we begin to say, you know what, I know my spouse and my children and these people at work are rude or apathetic, but you know what, I just got forgiven and so I'm going to forgive too. That's what the comfort of Christ does to us. It keeps telling us, I'm not separated from the love of Christ. That's what defines me. And so because I've been forgiven, I'm just going to keep forgiving those around me. You know what's going to happen, too? Eventually, somebody's going to come up to you and go, man, are you all right? (laughs) Everything okay with you? You know why? Because you're going to be forgiving when nobody forgives. You're going to be being kind when nobody else would be kind. And and that's going to rattle people's cage. And they're going to want to know what you have. And you're going to say, I have the comfort of Christ. I cannot be separated from his love. So I I can handle this. The comfort of Christ is a seed for unity. And what about the next if statement? If I embrace the promise that I'm in fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God, then what I'm reminding myself is that the frustration and the fear and the anxiety and the stress that I might be experiencing in any given moment is not my consolation prize. That's not what I end life with. In fact, I begin to realize that because of my fellowship with the Spirit, 
that the worst disagreement, the most awful argument, the most severe division in my life can in no way touch my final reward. Because my final reward has been sealed. It's been promised. My inheritance I will get because of the Spirit. And that will encourage me in the middle of any argument, in the middle of any division. You know what? What happens after this is not my consolation prize. My prize is Jesus. My prize is eternity. My prize is heaven. That's what fellowship with the Spirit will do. Fellowship with the Spirit is a seed of unity. And the last if statement. If I can get my mind and my heart to grab this understanding that the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus grabs me deep in my heart, that it means that all day, every day, I keep remembering, you know, God's not dealing with me today the way I deserve. Stephen Cole said this, Thank God that he didn't look at me and say, Stupid sheep, serves you right to be suffering because you're such a sinner. Thank God he had compassion on me. And now, having received his compassion and his tender mercies, I must show the same to other sinners even if they don't deserve it. (laughs) I can promise you, none of us usually deserve to be forgiven. You know why? Because whatever came at our mouth was actually a lot ruder in our minds first, right? And we cleaned it up a little bit, you know, because maybe the kids were in the other room, you know. We don't get treated like we actually deserve. That's motivation for unity. That's, that's motivation for how we do life. It's motivation for how we function with our families and with others. We begin to do unto them the way God has done unto us. We have encouragement. We have comfort. We have this fellowship with the Spirit. And we have this unbelievable compassion and mercy that we have from Jesus. And so when we put all those together and we put them under the umbrella of, hey, this is what I have, and and so I should be pursuing unity with other people because I have all this stuff in Jesus. It boils down really to one question that we ask ourselves every day. Right now, in this moment, Is Jesus increasing or am I increasing? Right now in this moment, am I trying really hard to honor the one who loved me and gave himself up for me? Or am I just trying to get my way? Can I just give you this advice from 24 hours, 365 days a year, seven days a week of personal experience? When you get what you want, it won't be what you want. It won't. Because what you want most is encouragement and comfort and fellowship and compassion from Jesus. That's what you want most. Your wife and your husband and your kids and your job and your favorite team, they can't give it to you. But Jesus can. So when we fight for what we want, if it's not fighting for Jesus, we will not get what we really want. Now Paul's going to help us to to think through this with just, just four words. The last four words of the verse. Look what he said there. He said, we're supposed to be intent on one purpose. If you're a Christian, what is the purpose of your life? And if we're a Christian church, what is the purpose of our lives together at this church? John Lambert was standing before King Henry VIII. He had been arrested 
for admonishing his pastor for preaching a sermon that was inconsistent with the Bible. Don't see that on the nightly news all the time, right? This guy got arrested for telling the pastor he didn't preach what the Bible said. But that's what happened to John Lambert. He'd already been before some judges and some lawyers and some bishops. He had been in front of all of these kinds of people, but now he was at his last stop. He was standing before King Henry VIII. And the king decided he was going to give him another shot. And so the king said to him, do you want to live or do you want to die? What do you say? This is what he said. I commend my soul unto the hands of God, but my body I wholly yield and submit unto your clemency. People don't talk like that anymore. John Lambert, look at the most powerful man on the planet for him. And he said, I commit my soul to the one who's more powerful than you, King Henry. But my body, I submit to your rule and your way. Well, the king took him at his word. He was convicted. He was tried. He was sentenced to be burned at the stake. While he was burning at the stake, his lower body, had been consumed by flames. And so the soldiers grabbed the chains and pulled him up higher so that he could suffer longer, so that he would not die quickly. And with nothing but an upper body left, Lambert raised his hands in the middle of those flames, and before he breathed his last, he shouted out, None but Christ! None but Christ! Christian, if you are a Christian, that is the purpose of your life. That's the purpose of your life with your spouse. It's the purpose of your life with your children. It's the purpose of your life at work, at church, at school, in your job, and everywhere else in the world. If you are a Christian, your purpose is simply that. None but Christ. None but Christ. That's